Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you. And uh, as Asa said, we've got some unique things going on this morning that we are looking forward to, uh, the ordinances of, of the church, of our church, and great reminders of what we just sang, uh, the beautiful mystery of Jesus Christ. So uh, I've been looking forward to this morning, and I count it as a privilege to be able to uh, share God's word with you. Um, the power, the, the weight of this morning is not in my words, but in his. And so uh, I've been looking forward to this, anticipating it, and God's word has impacted me this week. So it, Emily and I moved here going on 10 months, 10 months a couple days ago. Uh, so if you've gotten to know me at all, you uh, know that I'm a curi- curious kind of person. I like to ask questions and learn things. And so as I've grown in learning, I've grown to appreciate history and all sorts of things. And so, so one thing that I've enjoyed doing, I, I look forward to doing, and I kind of have an eye to do, is noticing older buildings and uh, maybe on the corner of a town. This one is, is in the town that I grew up in, Mechanicsburg. We just visited uh, a couple of days ago this weekend, and I drove by it, and I thought, that's a, that's a good picture. I'll put that in my, uh, in my PowerPoint. But um, in this picture, there's a little plaque right here, and it has the date that that building was built. Uh, and that always sticks out to me. I love to notice when buildings were built, and sometimes it's etched on the cornerstone of the building. And that, that date uh, stirs my curiosity um, I think about the cornerstone that sets at the corner of this building, the, the big cornerstone that would have set the direction for the walls. It would have been the first stone that was laid, supporting the rest of the foundation. And this marker was not a part of that original design, I'm sure, right? They didn't, when they built the building, they didn't put this, this plaque. We built this in 1790. Sometimes we do that. We even have one on our church. I don't know if you knew that. We have one out on the front here. Um, this marker stirs my imagination and my thinking. I think about what that home was like when it was first built. What family lived there? What did the street look like? What did their, what did their lives look like? Um, what was their, even their purpose for building that building, that home? Right? They, they had some, some purposes in mind. They, they needed a place to live, to be warm, to do family things, to cook meals and, and be comfortable. They set their house up in a way for them to live in. And so this, this cornerstone of buildings, they, they stir this, this imagination in me. And what we're going to consider this morning is that the church has a cornerstone as well. The church has a cornerstone as well. And it does even a little bit more than just stir our imagination or our thinking or our love for history. Considering Christ the cornerstone gives us rest and spurs us to conviction as we set ourselves upon the cornerstone, Christ Jesus. God gives us rest and spurs us with conviction when we place ourselves upon Christ, the cornerstone. So would you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians with me? I'm going to have a number of the verses that we look at on the screen, but I encourage you to look at them in your Bible get to know your Bible. 
It's been a great uh, encouragement and challenge for us to study the book of Ephesians in, in youth group, in HSM. We've been doing it, started in the fall, and uh, it's been a lot of fun to consider this book with our students. We've been examining that Paul writes to the Ephesians to uh, encourage them and assure them of their faith in Christ Jesus. Paul writes uh, the book of Ephesians to show them that God saves his people so that they would live for him. God saves his people so that they would live for him. And throughout the letter, Paul is showing us that what we believe, specifically about salvation, shapes how we live. What we believe shapes how we live. And so Paul starts the book by beautifully laying out the rich blessings that the Ephesians have in Christ through the working of God. They've been chosen and predestined and redeemed. And he goes on to pray for them about the hope that they have in Christ. He wants them to know the hope that they have in Christ. He praises God for Jesus and offers up this prayer. He goes into chapter 2, and in chapter 2, he gives one of the clearest presentations of the gospel in the whole Bible. We were dead in our sin because of our sin nature, but each of us dead in our sin because of the sin that we lived in. We were without hope. We were without God. We were dead. We followed everything but God, the the flesh, the world, the ruler of the world, Satan. And then Paul says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. With the rest of chapter 2, Paul works out the implications of that salvation. There, There was the way to get to God through the nation of Israel, through the law, through sacrifices and circumcision, but that way is no longer. It is now through Jesus. Those who were far off, the, the people uh, not in Israel, the Gentiles, are now one with those who were close to God. We have one new man, and that is the church. This brings us to the end of chapter 2, where we'll be this morning. And in verses 18 to 22, Paul describes the nature and the foundation of the church. The church is universal and distinct. It's made up of Holy Spirit indwelled believers. And the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. We're built into God's temple, his household. So this cornerstone is going to be our focus. And uh, what we're going to find is that we have great comfort and conviction as we set ourselves upon him. So let's read together. I'm going to start a little bit before our verses and start in verse 14. So follow along with me. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
In him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thankful for the chance to gather and to consider, again, the church. Help us consider your word in light of that. I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to help me communicate your word and the truth that it holds. And I pray that you would use your spirit to convict us of that truth and guide us into righteousness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's consider by, no, let's start by noticing, let's start by noticing how Paul describes the nature of the church. Verse 18 says, for through him we, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. It's through him being Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus' shed blood on the cross that we have access to God the Father. We can become a worshiper of him, become one of his people. And by the Spirit, by one Spirit, helps us understand that the church is made up of Holy Spirit indwelt believers. It's not, um, it's not an outward sign that marks us, it's an inward sign, and that is the Holy Spirit. So these, these verses highlight the, the three persons of the Trinity, and there's three aspects of the nature of the church that we're going to consider. Because of Jesus giving us access to God through the Holy Spirit, we can say that the church is universal. God's people are no longer just the nation of Israel. The way to God is not through circumcision, through the nation of Israel, through following the law. The way to God is through Jesus. And so that spans nations. It's universal. It spans people groups. It's, it spans time since its inception. The church is universal. The Holy Spirit is not bound by time or location. It comes to live in each one of us as we believe in Jesus. The universal church should not be confused with universalism, the idea that everyone is saved eventually, because the church is also distinct. The church is also distinct. While the church stretches across the world and nations and time, like I said, there are certain criteria that are required to be a part of God's church. Notice verse 19 in the, in the language that Paul uses. He, he describes a contrast. It says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. The contrast being foreigners and citizens, strangers and members, right? A foreigner being someone who's on the outside or a stranger uh, communicating the same thing. It says we're no longer this, but we were. We were foreigners. We were strangers, and, and some people still are. Have you, have you ever been a foreigner in a, in a different country? Um, does, it hasn't happened very often for me. I've been to Canada, so <laughs> there's, there's some differences. Um, not a lot, but Maybe some of you have felt that, or maybe if you haven't been out of the country, you've, uh, you've been a stranger at an event or a party or something like that, and you just you show up and you're not, kind of not sure where you fit, how you, you feel like you stand out, right? And um, I think we can consider this, that God, God wants us to be kind as the church. God wants us to be hospitable, 
But there is a sense in which if, if you're not a part of the church, it'll be weird to be participating in church. Church is not something that we, we do. It's, it's something that we are. So if you come just to do church, it's going to feel like you're a foreigner. The Holy Spirit has come and indwelt us. And that's what makes us the church. So the church is distinct. The church is distinct. And so God makes this distinction with his spirit, marks his people. And they become his dwelling place. God's people become his dwelling place. The believers are assembled into a holy temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God. This is what verses 21 and 22 show us. In him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by the Spirit. So when Paul speaks of a temple, I'm sure that he had a physical temple somewhere in his mind. He was a Jew after all, right? So he would have understood, he would have been familiar with the temple in Jerusalem or even the tabernacle that his ancestors worshipped God. The temple was the place where people would come to meet with God and offer sacrifices and specifically the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary, being where God dwelled on his mercy seat. Special preparations were necessary before meeting with God. The consequences were as severe as death for, for not following them. So Paul would have had this temple in mind. I think he also might have had the, the, the temples of Gentiles in mind as well. In Ephesus, there would have been Jews and Gentiles. And Ephesus was the home of <clears throat> the great temple, one of the seven wonders of the world, the, the temple of Diana or Artemis, as she was called by the Romans. She was the god of uh, fertility or prosperity. She supposedly granted success with hunting or gardening or having children. So Paul was writing to the Ephesians who have this temple in their city, and this temple served in a similar way to the Jewish temple. It housed the deity of Artemis. It's where she lived. It's where she was worshipped. So what's the difference between what Paul is describing in Ephesians 2 and these other temples? What's, what's the difference? The temple is no longer somewhere that you go. The temple is us. The temple is the believers. God is making us into a holy temple. God doesn't live in a physical temple or even reside in a physical church like we're gathered in this morning because he takes up his residence in his people. Paul gives this imagery that spiritually God is, is building his temple piece by piece with us, people who put their faith in him for salvation. And he adds to the, the household and makes that his dwelling place. <clears throat> so there's, there's some pretty big implications of understanding this. God is, is residing in us as individuals and collectively as the church. So God is with us. Emmanuel. It's, it's not just a Christmas truth, but God is with us. He's dwelling among us. He was with us then through Jesus, and now he's with us through his Holy Spirit. So as a believer, I don't have to go looking for God. I don't have to go to God. He's in me. I don't have to worry if he'll leave me, because he's with me. 
He's placed his spirit as a deposit on my life. There's rest in that. There's, there's comfort in knowing that God is with us. We can find rest in his presence. The other implication is to understand the purpose of a temple, right? The, the purpose of the Jewish temple or the temple of Artemis was for people to go and meet with God, to worship God in the temple. So if, if now we, if now I am the temple, people come to meet God through me. I want you to, I want you to catch this. God's purpose from the beginning of creation has been that his image would be spread through the world. He, he created Adam and Eve, right? He created Adam and Eve, and he created them in his image. He placed them in the garden, and what was their role? Their role was to multiply and fill the earth, fill the earth with his image. And then God calls his people, starting with Abraham. He sets them aside, he takes them through some things, but where does, where does God place his people? He places them in the center of the world, right? In Israel, it's, it's between Egypt and Babylon and um, Turkey, right? And Rome and Greece, it's right in the middle. Why would he place them there? So that they could image him to the world. And now, his people are his church. That's us. He's called us, he's made us alive, and he's made us into his dwelling place, placing his spirit inside of us. Why would he do this? So that through our lives, he would show him his image to the rest of the world. This has been his purpose from the beginning. It's what he's doing through us, his church as his dwelling place. And so we are his dwelling place, his temple. His church is growing up. It's growing up corporately as people come to faith. And it's growing up individually as we are living stones making up the church. The, the structure grows. It grows as it's connected to the foundation. It grows as it's connected to the foundation. Look with me in verse 20. <clears throat> so Paul, describing the church, says that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So a foundation is what a structure rests on, right? This, this makes me think about another uh, personal story. We were moving here in April of last year, and we were looking at some different houses. Uh, we, we looked at one to consider buying, and so we, we made an appointment and went to see it with our realtor. And especially being first-time potential home buyers, we looked over it thoroughly. And... We're walking around the outside of the house, and one corner of the block foundation is missing a substantial piece of material. And so, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a contractor. I have some experience in those types of things. But looking at it, I could tell that that, I said, that's not, that's not good. Um, so, that's not good, yeah. I didn't have much more to say. <clears throat> But then we went inside, and we're looking around, and the living room had joists that were running the length of the living room, and there was a drop ceiling in the living room, not anywhere else in the house. And I thought, that's kind of weird. So we 
popped one of the ceilings out, and sure enough, a bunch of the drywall was missing, and they had, in an attempt to repair the second floor bathroom, had taken a substantial piece of one of the joists out. And so I said, that's not good. Uh, and those, those two issues were enough to make us not buy the house, considering what it would need because of the foundation and the, the foundation for the second floor. So, like that house, like any building, rests on the, the concrete or the blocks, the church rests on its foundation too, and that foundation is the apostles and the prophets. These men who make up the foundation were witnesses to Jesus himself, who is the word of God. They saw his work in his ministry. They heard and received his teaching. They followed him. They saw his ministry. They believed in him as their savior. They placed their faith in him and were discipled by Jesus. And they grew. And what they, what they saw under his discipleship, under his teaching, they passed on. They passed on to us. They, they spread his image through the world by writing letters and planting churches and doing ministry together. They laid the foundation of the church. They, they are the foundation of the church. So seeing that the foundation has been laid by the apostles, right, this is a past tense completed action. It's been laid. We don't need another foundation. We don't need more apostles or more prophets. We don't need more of God's word. What we need is a deeper reliance on what we do have in God's word. We need a deeper reliance on Jesus, considering the foundation. Because Jesus, in a primary sense, is the foundation of the church. What they received, they got from him. This is, uh, this is literally what Paul says uh, I use that word precisely. This is literally what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen, I believe. It says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, someone else, and, and someone else is building on it. But each should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. Paul, the apostle, set himself upon the cornerstone, Christ Jesus. It's not surprising uh, then that Peter would also say a similar thing in 1 Peter 2, which we're going to look at a little bit more in a few minutes. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's interesting to make a connection between Peter saying that and what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16 in response to, computer, to, in response to Peter confessing him as the Messiah. Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Lots going on in that passage, but I, I have to think that maybe some of what he had in mind is, Peter, you're going to be a part of the foundation of my church. So, we see more clearly now that Christ is the cornerstone. He 
starts the foundation, and we set ourselves upon him. We set ourselves upon the apostles and prophets as they set themselves upon Jesus. This is why we can call Jesus the cornerstone, the precious cornerstone as Isaiah calls him. As the cornerstone, Jesus sets the, he sets the placement and the direction of every other stone in the building. That's, that's us. We're, we are the stones. Jesus sets the direction. All of the other stones must adjust themselves to the cornerstone, the, the square cornerstone, the, the sure and steady foundation. Why, why would Jesus be the cornerstone? Why, why, would, why would we call him that? On what basis? It's because he's the only one who has the authority and the ability to be that. Listen to what Paul says earlier in Ephesians. This is part of his prayer about what he wanted the Ephesians to know. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Who, who else could be the cornerstone? Who else is righteous to, to set the direction? There's, there's no one righteous. Who else is faithful to be the rock that we set ourselves upon? There isn't anyone else. It's Jesus. Christ must be the cornerstone. He is an everlasting rock. He is a, a sure foundation. <clears throat> so we have this picture info- unfolding in front of us of Paul describing what the church is. It's universal, it's distinct, it's God's dwelling place because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's set on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. It's being built up into God's dwelling place, his holy temple. We are the holy temple, and, and Christ is our cornerstone. This, uh, this is a great, uh, a great theological truth, right? It's good to know. But what's the significance of knowing it? Why is it worth considering? Why is it worth considering letting God's word penetrate to our hearts? beyond just our heads. And I'd like to use a quote to uh, set the direction for, for allowing God's word to penetrate our hearts. So uh, this was from a commentary that I read this week. It says, what was the most important function of any earthly temple which Paul may have had in mind when he wrote as he did? The answer must be that the literal temple specifically the inner enclosure or sanctuary, was not built for the comfort of the worshipers, but as a shrine to house the deity. 
So what Paul is bringing out is the beautiful truth, the beautiful truth that we have now become the earthly sanctuary for God himself. Therefore, it's not about me. It's not about my comfort. My life is not my own. My life was not built for my own comfort or ease because I'm the worshiper. My life was created and redeemed so I could be the dwelling place, so we could be the dwelling place of God and show his image to a world that needs him. The basis for saying this is found simply in considering who God is as our creator. So would you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 46? Isaiah 46, Isaiah is speaking of the gods of Babylon. Um, So follow along in verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beast of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. So Bel and Nebo were gods of the Babylonians. And Isaiah brings them up here to highlight their nature and their failure to deliver the Babylonians. Right? Consider, uh, consider the first two phrases. Bel bows down and Nebo stoops low. The gods are bowing. The gods are stooping low. The gods are carried and are a burden. They failed to deliver Babylon. They, the gods themselves went into captivity. He goes on in verses 3 and 4. He says, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob. Listen to me, all of the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried you Carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. Listen, he says, people of God. I'm not like the God of the Babylonians who bow down themselves and need carried and who are a burden. I made you. I I carried and will carry you. I will sustain you. I will rescue you. So here's the significance of that. We make our own idols and our own gods but God has made us. We do what we do because we want what we want, and so we make gods of things that we think will give us what we want. We do what we do because we want what we want, 
So we make gods of things that we think will give us what we want. We worship sports and think that participating and winning will give us an accolade. And it might, but that accolade will let us down. We watch sports because we want to partake in the glory. Super Bowl Sunday, right? Not a bad thing, but a bad God. We give our affection and our hearts and relationships because we just want to be accepted. We just want to be loved. But when we put that before God, it will let us down. It's a bad idol. We even do this with church buildings, doing church, right? We, we think of good attendance. We think of good giving. We think of checking the boxes for a feeling of security or being a good person. Any idol like this will fail, will be a burden to us because we have made it. Anything, anything we set before God will let us down because idols are created and they're not the creator. God was not made by human hands. He is the creator. And rather than carrying him, he carries us. And he rightfully, rightfully demands that our lives be about him. So all the things that I worship are a burden to me. God provides rest. He gives me security when I rest on him as the cornerstone. So what is our, what is our rest? What is our conviction as I titled this passage this, this message. Paul describes the church as something that's, that is alive, it's growing, it's active. It's being added to, and you could say that it's alive because its parts are alive. Let's go back to that passage in First Peter. I'm going to put it on the screen. It's, it says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So we are being built into God's spiritual house commissioned to be a priesthood, to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Acceptable to God. So what would, what would be an acceptable sacrifice? Look with me now in Romans chapter 12. We'll, we'll keep tracing this argument. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we're, we're, getting, we're getting closer to putting this all together. 
As we read 1 Peter 2 and Romans 12, we must ask ourselves, is there any part of my life that is not in line with Christ the cornerstone? Is there any part of my life that has been given to worshiping an idol? Christ is the cornerstone. He sets the direction and the shape of the universal church, certainly, of of Heritage Baptist Church, certainly, but of my life. He sets the the shape and the direction of my life. If we're going to be a part of his household and glorify him, the cornerstone rightfully demands that we align ourselves with him. So the first question that you have to answer is, are you even a member of the household? Are you still a foreigner or a stranger? That's the first step, the, the positional change of not being in the house to being a living stone, redeemed by God. Earlier in this chapter, Paul challenges, challenges us to take a, a look back. He says, remember that at, that at one time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. And this, is, this was all of us at one time. Maybe it's still you. Paul offers the solution. He, he gives us the, the solution. God, God's word gives us the solution to this problem of not being a part of God's household. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Every one of us has earned the eternal status of being far away from God. Every one of us spiritually dead. Every one of us can have spiritual life and be brought near by trusting in the blood of Jesus, his perfect blood, which we're going to remember in a few minutes through communion, shed on the cross for my sins, and then his resurrection from the dead. So believe in Jesus. What's, what's stopping you from doing that this morning? Believe in Jesus and receive salvation. Join the church and become the dwelling place of God. So what, what if you are a part of the church? You're saved and you're positionally in the building. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, is what part of my thinking or actions is not aligned? Not if there's a part, which part? That's the conviction. We're not perfect. We're not Jesus, and we're not in glory with him yet. And so what part of my life, my thinking or my actions, has drifted away? Have I let pride wedge itself into my heart to think about myself more than I ought to? Have you forgotten the work of God in your life to bring you to salvation? Have you made an idol of something that makes a bad God? A burden is rest in Jesus as the cornerstone. Deepen your meditation on his word so that your heart would be transformed and your affections set on Christ. Deepen your knowledge of his word so you can conform your thoughts to that of Christ's thoughts. Deepen your relationship with one another so that as you 
know his word, you can live it out together and, and image God to the whole world. Resolve this morning to offer your whole life as a living sacrifice to God who dwells inside of you, inside of us. And this is the, the point of communion which we're about to take, right? To reset, to, to evaluate. It doesn't have to be somber, but it should be reflective as we consider what Christ did, his body and his blood, and we consider how my life reflects that. Our righteous Savior calls us to align ourselves with him and our faithful God promises to carry us. That's what we rest in this morning.